Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor. I'll be one of your hosts today. And first and foremost, me and Tanner just want to say thank you for all the support uh, here in the beginning of the second season. And that's a just a really exciting thing. I don't know if we thought we would ever make it this far when we started it, but it's it's been fun. You know, also, we want to shout out some of our social media stuff. Twitter, we are beyond underscore breakers. Instagram is beyond the breakers podcast. Email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook page. I know there's not a ton of content on there, but it is just another way to get a hold of us. Um, we definitely will work on getting more stuff on there. And we also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. Um, the show will always be ad free. We don't want to run ads. I don't want to sell you a mattress. Uh, but money from the Patreon just goes into uh, web hosting fees, research materials, recording equipment, all the usual stuff. You know, if you think the show's worth a couple bucks and you have a couple bucks to spare, we would greatly appreciate it. And speaking of people we appreciate, we'd like to say thank you for Carter. Thank you for signing up uh, for the Patreon. We, we definitely appreciate the support. One final request from you guys, uh, ratings and reviews, they always help out. They definitely help out with the algorithms on the, uh, po- the podcast websites. Apple Podcasts, we've had a really good showing there. And then Spotify now has ratings. And uh looks like we've got like 15 on there. So we would definitely appreciate you guys taking the time to do that as well. That stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? Pretty well. Pretty good. Nice. Ready for some football today. <laughs> Ready for some football. It's it's a good cold day to watch the Green Bay Packers. Yes, it is. Um, it's 10 degrees in Ohio today. It's we had some we finally had some really cold days here the other day yeah. I uh, was leaving for work in the morning I checked the weather and it just said Stalingrad. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah. Let's see. So what have you been into? What the what kind of you got any media stuff or what have you been doing this week? I actually had a really busy week at work, so I wasn't as wasn't as active with my hobby stuff when I when I was getting home. But um, it's the worst reading. when the work gets I, in in the way of hobbies. Yeah, I did some reading. Uh, I'm reading the Walter Scott novel Red Gauntlet. It's uh, nice. kind of in typical Walter Scott fashion involves a young man and secrets and a possible Jacobite conspiracy. Interesting. Um, so that's good. I started reading a book by by Kinley Bryant. Uh-huh. Uh, I posted about this the other day on Twitter. Actually, it's called Sisters of the Sweetwater Fury. It's a novel about uh, about the 1913 Great Lakes storm, which we are obviously very interested in. So I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. It's one of several things in my reading stack uh, that I'm rotating through. But cool. uh, but I'm really enjoying it. So. Nice. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear about that one once you're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine is, I don't know, not that exciting, but I've, uh, I've jumped on the Wordle craze. That, uh, yeah, I see that. It's a good time. I hope you guys I've done a enjoy. Couple of, I've done a couple of those with Katie. Um, I've, I've, so I kind of know how it works. And I, I now can interpret those squares well, that everyone's squares. posting. Yeah. It's just enough for me because, like, I don't want to sit there and play words with friends for, like, you know, all day long. But it's, uh, you know, just enough to take 10 minutes to kind of relax with it. There's no ads or anything. It's just a, a fun couple minutes. And I forgot nice. about I forgot about words with friends. Yeah. That's, this is definitely more just... I don't know. I like it. It's it's for me. No commitment. <laughs> right. Yeah. It yeah, seems like it seems like a fun, harmless way to spend some time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so are you ready to talk about the thing we talk about on here? Ships not doing their jobs properly. Yes. 
I'm very excited about this one. Yeah, this will be a good one. It's it's definitely we we've kind of you know this will be different than some of the other things we've been talking about. So it'll be good. We will be uh, we will be revisiting the Mississippi River on this one. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've been a, a really long time. I think the Sultana, which is what episode three or four. Episode three, the Sultana. Three. Yeah, this this one has some things in common with the Sultana. A little little differences. Let's go ahead and get into it. We are going to talk about the Sea Wing today. Have you ever heard of the Sea Wing? No, not not until the lead up to this episode. I'd never ever in my life heard of the Sea Wing. <laughs> so it's definitely one of like these stories that I was aware of and knew about. I've read the wiki. I'm sure at some point. And then I just happened to stumble across it a couple weeks ago. And I was like, you know what? I have to do this one. Like sometimes you just see a story and you're like, we've got to do it. Mm-hmm. So right. that is, uh, that's where we're at. So let's talk about it. The sea wing was a stern wheel paddle steamer built in 1888 in diamond bluff, Wisconsin. Um, I think you probably know a little bit more about these type of vessels than I do, but this is uh, the stern wheel paddle steamer is basically like what you think of when you think of a, a riverboat, right? Would you say? Yes, I would say so. Um, the stern wheelers are much more useful on the river, so these these river boats are, are usually that variety. Yeah, this this looks like what you'd expect in like a Mark Twain novel or something. Mm-hmm. She was 135 feet long. She had a beam of 16 feet and a draft of only four and a half feet, which kind of like what you were saying, like to go up and down these rivers, they had to have extremely shallow drafts. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are flat bottom boats, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Most of these steam. I think Paddle so. I, yeah. I, I don't know yes or no, but I'm, I'm going to guess. With yes. a draft of only four and a half feet, probably. <laughs> All right. So she was owned in a partnership by her captain, David Nile Weatherin and Melvin Sparks. Uh, they operated the vessel under the company name of Diamond Joe Line. Uh, if I can uh, just co- comment here, Nile, yes. very good name for a ship captain on a river. For, for someone that has a, a riverboat. <laughs> Sparks, not as good of a name. Less good. Sparks are bad. Yes. Um, So the vessel uh, was typically used to tow logs on a raft up and down the Mississippi River to different lumber mills. So they would carry logs on the steamship, and then they'd also tow a barge. So kind of get that mental image in your head. Mm -hmm. The barge that that would accompany her (laughs) went by the name of Jim Grant. Sounds like a person. I'm, and I'm assuming it is somewhere. <laughs> I would assume it was named after someone. Um, the barge not only allowed the sea wing to carry more cargo, but the general theory behind it is that it helped to stabilize her and prevent her from capsizing. We'll talk about that more later. Uh, ever the budding capitalist, Captain Weatherin decided that he could make more money if he operated the sea wing as an excursion craft on the weekends. You know, classic problem. You're sitting around like, hey, I have a boat. I haul logs with it. But the, then the lumber mill's closed on Saturdays and Sundays. What do mm-hmm. I do? I can put people in my boat. Of course. More money. <laughs> as as one does. Don't mind the, the sawdust in the wood. Scrape that off to the side. So um, the trip would be basically, he wasn't offering much. He was offering the boat. The trip would basically be like a no frills type adventure. I've actually made the note that this man dreamed up Spirit Airlines before aviation even existed. <laughs> a forward-thinking individual. Right. Like, I, I will get you to where you want to go, but it's not going to be enjoyable. But here it is. <laughs> um, so in July of 1890, Weatherin announced that he would take the Sea Wing on a day trip to Lake City, Minnesota. 
departing from Diamond City, Wisconsin, and stopping at Red Wing, Minnesota en route. So Lake City is located on Lake Pepin. Lake Pepin is a naturally occurring lake on the Mississippi River between the states of Wisconsin and Minnesota. And this lake is actually formed at the end of the last ice age after a valley was formed from a massive outflow of the glacial river Warren. That's a good time for lakes. A lot of, lot of, lot of good lakes coming up at that time. A lot time. of good lakes in this region made in that time. <laughs> good vintage. It's not a lake like in the typical sense of how you might think of one. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like the Great Lakes or even just a big lake you might be familiar with. It's essentially like a flooded out section of the Mississippi River. It's just mm-hmm. a spot where the river becomes exceptionally wide. It's yeah. basically two miles wide. And there's a lot of these in the upper Mississippi where, you know, it, the river is just very broad mm-hmm. and it's it's effectively a lake. Yeah, if you look at the map, like depending on how zoomed out you are, you probably wouldn't even notice that this is any sort of exceptional part of the river. Uh, right. But yeah, you see that where it kind of like widens and narrows at different parts throughout the upper Mississippi, uh, especially yeah. as, as you're getting up by the Twin Cities. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting area, like topographically, I think mm-hmm. that especially over in that part of Wisconsin, Minnesota, a part that people probably don't associate with those states in their mind is all of the the bluffs and the cliffs overlooking the Mississippi. Right. Yeah, it was definitely weird when I moved to Minneapolis. Um, you know, you think about lakes and everything, and then they have all these big recreation areas for these big lakes, but it's all on the Mississippi River. And it was just kind of a, it's just not what you're expecting when you think of a lake, especially yeah. in Minnesota where they have so many lakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing to remember here is that it's a relatively shallow area. The average depth is 21 feet and the maximum depth is only 60 feet. So, hmm. you know, not particularly deep. Again, you're dealing with a river, so it's very different than being out on the ocean or even mm-hmm. on the Great Lakes or something like that. Right. And I uh, I did come prepared with a couple fun facts about okay. this lake. Fact number one, Ralph Samuelson invented water skiing on this lake. Like? He was the first person ever. Uh, that's what it said. He, the, apparently, they still have festivals on this lake and everything to to honor the history of water when, skiing. When was that? When did he do uh, that? There was a date listed, and I don't remember what it was. I was thinking someone had to have invented that before him. But then I get, at the same time, I guess maybe you probably need a significant amount of power yeah, I would imagine on. like until like a motorboat became a thing, like you you really yeah. couldn't do that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, f- fact number two. Laura Ingalls Wilder was born in the town of Pepin, Wisconsin, that sits on the lake. Hmm. Didn't know that. I knew she was born in Wisconsin, but I didn't know that she was born in this area. I didn't know that either. I actually didn't know that she was born in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yep. that is a little that's a little background of, of the area. One of many awesome Wisconsinites in history. There's a few. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little bit about the area. Um Again, it's the Mississippi River, essentially, as we tell the story. It's just not the Mississippi River that most people are probably thinking of. I feel like most people think of Memphis or Vicksburg or New Orleans. But mm-hmm. the upper Mississippi, is it's very different. It's a very different place than yeah. the lower Mississippi. So with that out of the way, we'll move on to the uh, the accident portion of this podcast. Why, why, this is why everybody's here, right? Mm-hmm. All right, this will take us to 9.30 a.m. on Sunday, July 17th, 1890. 
The sailing was greeted by over 150 eager customers at the levee in Red Wing, Minnesota. The crowd consisted mainly of families seeking a fun summer Sunday out on the lake. So, you know, July, it's the middle of July, it's hot. Everybody wants to be out on the lake just having a good time. This is a cheap way to do that. Yeah, this is this is shaping up like the Paisley Canal disaster yes. so far. It has a lot in common with that. So in addition to the Sea Wing, passengers were also loaded onto the barge, Jim Grant, that was in tow. So again, like you know, he's got the the capabilities, like why why waste it? You might as well use all of your available, you know, capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Upon arrival in Lake City, the excursionists were greeted with popcorn, ice cream, lemonade stands, and other events that were planned for uh, entertainment that day. It was a festival-like atmosphere, and it surely would have been one of the social highlights, like amongst this, you know, collection of small river towns. Mm -hmm. I would imagine this was a pretty big deal. You know, at this time period, too, I mean, just going somewhere and having some popcorn and ice cream was probably a pretty big deal. Yeah, it sounds awesome. There's just not a lot happening in... 1890. Mm-hmm. The, the, the entertainment options aren't there. <laughs> so unfortunately, the, the jovial scene would not last. Crowds would be scattered by late afternoon rain squalls that caused crowds to disperse and seek shelter. So all this stuff's been planned. You know, all these, you know, these towns, you know, people are, have come out and they're putting on a good, uh, good thing. And unfortunately, what happens so often in a, you know, a hot, Summer afternoon, out in the Midwest, you have some thunderstorms pop up. Mm-hmm. It's nothing as noted that these are particularly remarkable thunderstorms, but just enough to scatter everybody and kind of put a damper on the day. Mm-hmm. At around 7 p.m., Captain Weatherin blew the ship's whistle, signaling passengers that it was time to return to the vessel. Uh, you know, he's ready to go. It's 7 o'clock. It's, you know, it's starting to kind of get into the the twilight stage of the evening, but it's still light. I'm you know, he wants to try to leave before it becomes total darkness. Yeah, I imagine the Mississippi's even harder to navigate yes, when it's in the dark. dark. So concern began to spread in the crowd, and many of those that weren't uh, leaving on the vessel started advising people that were ticketed for the vessel to not board it due to the worsening weather. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it does not seem that the warnings were effective. Not only did the previous passengers board the vessel but she actually added to her total of 150 <laughs> and left with 215 people. <laughs> so they, they actually take on more people than they came with. Hey, if I know, if I know Americans, yeah, <laughs> I know a solid warning is just going to get more people to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so at eight o'clock, Captain Weatherin departed Lake city and entered Lake Pepin. Unknown to the captain, a severe storm system had already entered the region and this had already caused six fatalities near St. Paul, Minnesota. So this was actually, you know, there's reports of tornadoes, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But this is also 1890. And, the you know, it's kind of like what we talked about even in the, the storm, the Great Lakes storm of 1913. The forecasting and stuff like that just isn't there like today. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the communications aren't there. You know, he has no way of knowing that there's been major storms probably only 60 or 90 miles away in St. Paul. Like, he might make some different decisions if he knows what's happening here. And another thing to to sort of add on to that, both in the, the 1913 storm we talked about and here is, you know, you mentioned like the, the technology is just not there. And because of that, because it is a little bit more hit or miss with what they're predicting, the trust mm-hmm. also isn't there. And I, right, I, don't, like, know, yeah. I don't know for sure that, that that's the case, like in this situation, but there's that general idea that 
these guys don't know what they're doing. Like they're, they're guessing just like we do. Right. Um, so and in his so, mind, yeah. he's thinking I've got 215 passengers that need to get home. Like mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So by eight thirty, the captain begins to deal with the powerful gale that's coming off of the Minnesota shore. So uh, basically as he's leaving and departing, it's just getting worse. Like it's happening simultaneously. He's leaving and the weather begins to rapidly deteriorate. So he turns the vessel into the wind to meet the storm head on. And this is done as an attempt to maintain what little control he has over the vessel. So, you know, rather than taking waves to the broadside and rolling, he wants to try to face those head on so he can cut through them a little bit. That's pretty standard. We talk about that pretty frequently with storms. Many of the passengers sought refuge in the ship's undersized cabin. And this is not adequately sized to house everyone on board because this is a cargo ship. It's not meant to hold passengers. Mm-hmm. However, being the 1890s, chivalry's not dead. There's a concerted effort to get as many of the 57 women into the sheltered area as possible. Oh, good. Yeah, so we're just going to put them all in, uh, in there. So they won't be in the rain anymore. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that more later. I wouldn't want them to get wet. No, nope, you don't want that. Uh, The Sea Wing was now encountering waves that were larger than anything she would have conceivably been able to operate in. This is a freak storm. Like, this is not a typical thunderstorm that's that's hitting Mm -hmm. the the river at this point. Uh, You know, just reading through the descriptions, this sounds like they're on the Great Lakes or they're in the ocean. It's not, Mm -hmm. the river is not behaving the way that you would expect or this, you know, the small lake is not behaving the way that you would expect it to, to behave. Yeah, this connects to I to I think our episode on the duck boats, where mm-hmm. when when one of these freak storms blows up, it's it's putting this vessel that's just not designed to handle more than you know a, a small amount of weather, um, just putting it into a untenable situation. It seems like. Yeah, you know, I actually hadn't even thought about the duck boats until you said that. But this has this story has so much in common with that. Mm-hmm. The only difference is when the duck boat story happens, you can literally launch an app on your phone and see what the weather's doing. Yes. And what it will do. And it's so different than what we're dealing with in 1890. And you cannot use a stern wheel paddle steamer to storm the beaches of Okinawa. This is true. <laughs> this is true. They don't work like that. <laughs> um, so suddenly the sea wing was lifted by a massive wave. And that leaves it at like a 45 degree angle, basically, It's as it's riding this wave. And at almost the same time, the gale's winds pick up and capsize the steamer as if it's a toy. It literally just throws this vessel upside down. Think about like the force and the power. These are, these are basically straight line winds is what it, mm-hmm. it's hypothesized. Even, and like we just talked about, even just the, the phrasing, the sentence of, you know, this, this riverboat is turned over by a massive wave. Even just right. the idea of having a massive wave on the Mississippi River is odd, I mm-hmm. think, in the context of, of, of how, you know, like shipwrecks. Right. Like and that. I think something, too, I, I know not all of our listeners are from America. I know most of us have spent, or me and you have spent a majority of our life in the Midwest. These Midwest thunderstorms are are not something to mess with. Like, they're they can be exceptionally dangerous, even just a mm-hmm. severe storm. This is what we would probably call today a derecho. Like, there's no way of knowing, obviously, without seeing the weather, like radar information. Mm-hmm. But that that's the one of the hypotheses uh, behind this, hypotheses mm-hmm. behind this, is that 
they encountered a derecho essentially, which mm-hmm. if you don't know what it is, it's just a big, powerful line of storms that has some cyclonic activity in it. It can spawn a lot of tornadoes. They can be deadly. Like they, they happen probably once or you know twice a year. Um, they're very dangerous and should be uh, definitely taken seriously. Mm-hmm. For more on derechos, go back and listen to our episode on the duck boats. Yes. So as we left it, the gale's winds are flared up and we've capsized the steamer. The next scene here is basically chaos. The dark is only occasionally lit by lightning. Otherwise, all of this desperate scene is taking place in basically pitch black. There's people being thrown into the water. Um, There's people, as we previously mentioned, in the uh, interior portions of the vessel that's now capsized. It's, uh, you know, it really defies like the imagination almost to try to figure it, like picture what's going on. This is actually a detail that for me gets lost when I'm doing the research, when we're presenting something, when I'm listening back to our episodes, is that so many of our episodes do happen like in the middle of the night or after dark. Right, how dark everything is. And so even, is. even as I'm picturing things in my head, the, the one thing I'm usually picturing wrong is, is how much you can see of right. what's going on. Right. So of those fortunates that were tossed into the water... Some of them were able to climb, uh, cling onto the flat bottom of the stricken steamboat. Among those is Captain Weatherin. Um, he's able to climb onto the bottom of the vessel. So, you know, a little bit better. You're not in the water. You at least have something to hang on to. Uh, but you're still dealing with this storm. Um, others are able to survive by clinging to wreckage or even swimming to shore. Uh, you know, they're not that far off of shore. The water's fairly shallow. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a chance in the water here. This isn't being stuck in the middle of Lake Michigan. Less fortunate were those who had taken shelter in the ship's cabin. Ah, Due to the sudden nature of the accident, they never had a chance and quickly drowned when the vessel capsized. So again, it's not a vessel that is designed to hold people. It's very much a vessel that's designed to move cargo. You probably don't have a lot of entry and exit points. You probably don't have the life-saving equipment that you need for all of these people. It's just not a great situation. It's why you don't use a vessel to haul cargo and use that same vessel to carry a bunch of people mm-hmm. nowadays. Bringing up the um, bringing up the Paisley Canal disaster again, that ship involved there, the Countess of Eglinton, was kind of a similar situation, but for different reasons. Where whereas here you have people in this cabin, and it's not really designed for quick egress, right? Uh, whereas there you had people from the first trip who had not gotten off yet, who are still stuck in this cabin. And a lot of those people are the ones who end up being killed when it capsizes. Yeah. It's very interesting to see kind of the progression of safety regulations and things like that, that basically don't allow for things like this to happen or the Paisley canal disaster to happen anymore. Just how much more controlled and regulated things are back to our story here. Um, At central point near Lake city, the overturned vessels pilot house touches the lake bed, the riverbed, depending on how you want to look at it. So if you think about like how crazy that is, like the bottom or the what is now the bottom of the vessel is scraping the bottom of the lake. Mm-hmm. And that causes everything to kind of change. This causes the vessel to partially right itself. And she then comes to lay on her port side. This presents a problem, though, as there's a lot of people clinging onto the bottom of the vessel. They're suddenly tossed into the water due to the sudden movement. So at this point, you know, you think you're all right. You can ride this thing out. Just kidding. You're in the water. You might be stuck under the vessel. You mm-hmm. could be hit by debris. Like there's again, like we always talk about, there's so many ways to be killed in these incidents. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely crazy. It's, 
kind of some final destination stuff sometimes, you know? Yeah. I guess, I guess to, to add a, a small consolation here is a lot of the times we talk about these instances where people are in the water and sometimes there's something in the water that adds an additional risk, whether that's hippos or crocodiles or great white sharks in the case of Portuguese men of war, Portuguese (laughs) men of war. Whereas to the best of my knowledge in the Mississippi, at least the upper Mississippi, at least I don't think there's anything that's going to get you. Uh, Just a big catfish. Yeah. A big snapping turtle or something. (laughs) So it was at this point that some of the passengers on the barge actually jump off and took advantage of central points, shallow water. They're able to reach shore and they're actually they just run overland to Lake city and alert the authorities. Mm. So this is where a little bit of the local knowledge probably comes in. Most of these people are pretty familiar with the area. They're used to making these trips. They know that this is a pretty shallow area and they're actually in some cases able to jump into the water and wade ashore. Mm -hmm. So they're able to alert authorities to the situation as you know, before this, no one even knows what's going on. And then around midnight, members of the Minnesota national guard and other volunteers begin the grim task of removing bodies from the Sea Wing's main cabin. So another important thing to note here, especially with like these derechos and these fast-moving storms, it's over relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Like It's extremely intense for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then it's just over. And that's basically what happens here. The vessel comes to a spot where it can rest, and they're able to begin the task of recovery. The dead would be carried to the shore before being moved onto another steamer, the Ethel Howard. From there, they're transported to Red Wing, where the Howard would arrive at 610 Monday morning with 52 bodies. Uh, Red Wing is by far like the biggest town in this region. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the hub of everything. I'm sure that one of the reasons they took them there is they just have more resources, uh, a bigger morgue, more people that can do, you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I guess to, to add on, to that for our listeners if you're if you're checking out where this is on a map if you just find minneapolis you find the twin cities and this is just basically southeast of that not too far yeah just kind of follow the follow the river so back at central point recovery operations continued the national guardsmen worked to continue to recover bodies or any survivors that may have miraculously made it through the night by noon they had recovered an additional 10 bodies and it's thought that there were still around 40 passengers missing. Ultimately, search efforts would continue until Thursday of that week, and the final death toll would be 98. A little breakdown of the victims here. 67 of those victims were from Red Wing, Minnesota. Wow. That's a, that's a really high percentage, and just a lot of people from a town that, although it's like the, the regional hub, it's not it's very, not very big. big. It's not like I don't know what their population is, but I can't imagine it being more than a few thousand at this time, like Mm -hmm. best case scenario. So 67 people. um, And in some cases, and as we so often say, tragically, in these situations, in some cases, entire families are just gone. Mm -hmm. This is it's um, it's a tragedy. Kind of different context because this is more, you know, family units together. But in terms of numbers and being all from one place. This is, this reminds me so much of the Carl D. Bradley with Roger city, Michigan mm-hmm. of this pretty small town taking such a big hit from one incident. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like we always talk about, you know, it's tragic both ways, but in something like the Carl D. Bradley, like those guys are doing their job, a right. job that they understand is dangerous mm-hmm. and you know, they, they know it could end that way potentially mm-hmm. in this case. Um, you know, everyone's trying to have a fun Sunday afternoon. Like 
maybe people saved up to do this or, you know, this was a big, you know, thing to do with the family. Yeah. It's one of the things that always is unfortunate when you start one of these stories with, it was an excursion vessel on a Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon. Like, yeah. You just know it's not going to be a happy story. Mm-hmm. But I do imagine that had quite the impact on Red Wing. I imagine even still today, there's probably, you know, for a story that isn't as well known, I imagine it is still known in that region. Uh, another breakdown of the victims, as we talked about, um, so many of the women were crammed into the interior portion of the vessel. 50 of the 57 women that were on board did not survive. Wow. Most of that owing to the fact that almost all of them were shepherded into the cabin area. The, the area of safety. The area of safety, which immediately became unsafe when the vessel capsized and they couldn't get out. One thing I'm struck by here, there's so little documentation and official documents about this incident because of when it happened and where it mm-hmm. happened. A lot of the information comes from newspapers like that were written contemporary of the accident. Right. So there's just not a lot of concrete facts because a lot of these news accounts, they contradict each other or Mm -hmm. it's someone that just wants to tell a good story in the newspaper or the newspaper themselves just want to sell papers. You know, they're going to be a little over the top. Right. Like this is by far one of the least concrete research stories I could find. Mm hmm. And some of the some of the more recent episodes we've done where we have leaned heavily on contemporary reporting to kind of tell the story as it unfolded to people at the time. That is one of the things you see is just how mind blowingly contradictory sometimes these stories are, how blown out of proportion things can get in the initial reporting. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's so great when you can have the facts, but also sprinkle in some color from a contemporary report. But when mm-hmm. you're really only pulling from contemporary reports you're left with color and not a lot of fact. And sometimes. you see you see if you if you're looking at, you know, all these old newspapers, you can easily see how these, you know, one one small error in a story gets repeated over and over because you you look at all these papers that are reporting on something and right. a, a newspaper in Tuscaloosa, Alabama isn't, you know, isn't doing their independent reporting on something that happened up here. They're repeating whatever story got told about it first. And so you see these these same inconsistencies and these same errors repeated over and over again. And then that's, that's like you said, that sort of becomes the fact. Right. Yeah. It gets really hard sometimes with names or exact death numbers, that kind of thing, because you're right. These newspapers are just reporting what they hear. They're, they're not verifying this stuff. There's no official reports to go back to. There's just a lot. Again, it's just a lot of color commentary and not a lot of fact. And that, that is okay. I think it definitely all the more reason why we need to talk about these kind of stories that aren't as well documented. So let's talk about a little bit of the aftermath of this incident. Um, Of course, obviously it's a major regional tragedy. There's immediate calls for an inquiry into the accident. Formal hearings would be held in St. Paul, Minnesota on July 20th. So they really didn't waste a lot of time. Like I do like that about these old stories. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, nowadays it'd be years and years and there'd be lawyers and legal fights this is like, no, nah, be here a month later. We want to talk. Yeah, to you. we've we've, we've had stories where I think it was like the Anthony Wayne or something where you had people giving depositions and statements the following day. Yeah. Can like, you imagine nowadays? Like it's, it's, it's pretty crazy the pace that yeah. this moves. So the hearings were concluded after a week and a final report was issued. The report noted two major findings. The sea wing was overloaded at the time of the incident. And the vessel was not staffed by a properly licensed pilot or crew. <laughs> Additionally, 
The inspectors called Captain Weatherin's actions unskillful. Ooh, insult to injury there. Yeah, not great. Um, they find some stuff here that is very concerning. And a lot of it, again, just shows you how unregulated a lot of this stuff is. Or at least if there are regulations, there's no teeth behind them. They're not mm-hmm. being enforced. Yeah, at least those those first two. I mean, those are songs that we've sung before. Mm-hmm. You know, with overloaded vessels especially. We've had a couple where we've seen unlicensed or improperly licensed crew. We talked about that in the Doña Paz episode and the the vessel that she collided with, the Vector. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, I don't know, at least with that specific wording, this is the first one I remember where they say that the... the the captain was just straight up unskillful. So all that sounds bad, right? Like that all sounds like stuff that you should probably get in trouble for, right? It doesn't sound good. It's not stuff that I would put on my resume. Like if you were Captain Weather and you would be a little worried if like some officials said that about you. I'm going to get in so much trouble. Are you ready to be angry? I'm always ready for that on this show. <laughs> Federal authorities ultimately declined to bring charges against Weatherin, although they did not elaborate on their rationale. Like they just didn't say why? They just didn't say why. At all. Like, the, that's, that's, hmm. Yeah, that's frustrating. That's, that's, that's like when, I don't know, this is much more serious, but this is, it's like in a football game when there's a flag and then yep. they just announce there is no flag for pass interference. Yeah. And it like, okay, like there's just no explanation just, as to why. Just pick uh, that up. Just forget about <laughs> that. Um, so, so yeah, um, they would not elaborate as to why, but they did not charge him with any crimes. Uh, although he's initially met with scorn from the local community, and obviously, I mean, you're kind of the guy left holding the bag here. I mean, you were in charge. That that comes with being a, a ship captain. Mm-hmm. There were also many who felt sympathy for Captain Weatherin. Part of that owes to the fact that he lost his wife and youngest son in the incident. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that's part of the mitigating factor. I mean, what more punishment are you going to give this guy that he's right. not already feeling, right? Like, may- maybe that is part of it. Clearly, he wouldn't be operating recklessly intentionally if his wife and son are on board. Mm -hmm. And it is hard to hold someone accountable for the weather back in 1890 when we don't even really know how the weather works and we can't Mm -hmm. report it. Yeah. There is one final lingering question, and this is still something that's talked about today in this incident. Uh, Contemporary news reports told two contradictory stories. One was that the barge, the uh, Jim Grant, had been cut loose to give it a chance at survival. The second version was that the barge had broken loose after the sea wing capsized. Hmm. So just breaking that down there, there's someone either intentionally cuts the line or the line snaps. It's just a little bit different. What are the intentions behind these actions, you know? Mm-hmm. So Captain Weatherin did not help the situation by recounting the events occurring both ways. <laughs> Three days after the accident, in a letter written to the St. Paul Dispatch, He would write, the barge was not cut loose until the steamer capsized, and only then in an attempt to save it from being swamped also. So in this case, you can see he's saying that the steamer capsized and someone cut the line and, you know, they're acting heroically to try to save this barge to give them a fighting chance. Mm -hmm. However, in 1926, he would state in an interview that the sea wing would not have rolled over if the barge had not been cut loose. It seems that the captain may have revised his story with age and attempted to Mm. shift the blame to those on board the Jim Grant acting to save themselves. So it's very interesting that he kind of, he almost accuses the barge of being responsible for this happening. That, you know, if I still had that barge for stability, 
you know, the, the vessel wouldn't have rolled over. Right. It seems to be taking the blame off of him for operating in an unsafe environment. Mm hmm. Kind of thought about it a little bit and said, this, this story sounds better. It's worth noting that most of the survivor stories line up much more closely with the original story. Mm-hmm. that the steamer had already capsized when this line is either cut or snaps. So it's, it, for what that's worth, it seems that he had a lot of time to think about this story and revise it. Um, so, you know, when we're dealing with things like this, I mean, it goes without saying the sea wing is a disaster. That's it's an unspeakable tragedy. Like this is something that is just uh, a huge wound in the communities that it's affecting. But in dealing with stories this old, it can be difficult to fully comprehend like the human suffering that's occurred. I feel like we always talk about that. It's easier to laugh at something when it's 100 years old, right? Right. Like it just is than something that's a current event. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, when we do some of these more current ones, we definitely approach it differently sometimes. But I did want to tell the story of one of the victims of this tragedy to try to bring in a little bit of that human element to it. This is the story of Eliza Crawford. And she's a young school teacher. I think it said she was 23 or 24. Mm-hmm. Um, she's from Graysville, Ohio, originally. She's been living in Red Wing, Minnesota for about a month when she goes on this excursion trip. Mm -hmm. She's reported as being a kind and caring woman who loved teaching, as she called them, the little Norwegian boys and girls (laughs) in the region. Her uncle, H.W. Keller, lives in nearby Hayes Creek, Minnesota, and he's likely the reason she's able to obtain this job. And she travels from Ohio to Minnesota to begin teaching. In a letter that he would write to Eliza's family two days after the tragic accident, Keller would paint an exceptionally sad scene. This is quoting from the letter that he wrote. Eliza is among the missing ones and has not yet been found. I was up all night and today and have not yet been able to find her. I entertain no hopes whatsoever of her safety. I have deferred to telegram you in hopes that she might be found. She may be found soon and it may be many days yet. We are nearly overcome with grief and fatigue. Do not take it too hard, for there is no blame to be laid on anyone except the captain of the boat. There are whole families lost. As far as known, there were only five females saved. There were life preservers on the boat, but few availed themselves of them. There is mourning in Red Wing. Nearly all were from there. God only knows the sorrow it has and will cause. We mourn not as those who have no hope. Liza was a good girl and has many friends, has made many friends in a short time. You do not know what a painful task this is. Such a disaster has never befallen the country. May God help you to bear up is my sincere prayer. It definitely brings that human element into this. And, you know, it's one thing when you read these names and everything, but to actually read those writings, like that's pretty powerful stuff. It's it brings up one of the kind of I guess it's kind of a mundane detail of the story, but it's it's one of those logistical differences, you know, between then and now. You know, this terrible tragedy happens and this person has to has to wait to even, you know, let the family know that something's happened because he doesn't know what's going to happen in the meantime. Right. Um, and I mean, he makes a decision, he even says in the letter that I could have telegrammed you, but it could change. You know right. what I mean? And then I'd have no way of letting you know quickly that, oh, you know, we found her, she's alive, or we found her, she's dead. Yeah. And so like, he writes the letter instead. So, sort of how how careful you had to be with what you were communicating, because it was, you, you couldn't instantly correct it, uh, yeah. what, what you were saying. It is, it's a lot more deliberate. I feel like the communication at this point is a lot more deliberate. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, it's also sure. interesting showing too, like it says right there, there's no one to blame, but the captain, like yeah. that's the sentiment in the community in the immediate aftermath of this. Like this is the captain's fault. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting. Then on July 27th, Keller would write another letter to Eliza's family in Ohio. In it, he explained in detail that her body was found. He actually goes into really, really far more detail than one would expect in a letter like this. And perhaps part of that's because, you know, they're not going to be able to necessarily view the body and everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you want that closure. Suffice is to say that a couple days in the water is not great. Additionally, Keller pays $5 for the cost of her grave. And $1 for the deed to a plot in Oakwood Cemetery in Red Wing, Minnesota. So he actually kind of settles up her affairs there in Minnesota, and he actually p- provides the uh, the gravesite and everything. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, he kind of rounds up her personal effects and ultimately sends those back to Ohio. And the only it's noted that the only uh, bit of like memorabilia that the family really gets back that that was from the accident is her hat. So they actually were able to recover the hat that she was wearing at the time of the accident. So, yeah, it, uh, I don't know. I thought that story definitely stuck with me as I was reading through these sources. I mean, you know how it is. You read through a lot of these and you can find a million different tragic stories in a lot of these times. But I don't know. This one was definitely unique. It was a definitely a good window kind of into what this tragedy was like on the ground as it was happening. Yeah, for sure. That, 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 gives, that gives the human insight that we're always sort of looking for. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, that is the story of the sea wing. It's, it's a unique story. I mean, I don't think we have that happen all that often today um, due to the better weather forecasting, that kind of thing. But then you have stories like the duck boats and you realize that, you know, some of the stuff is eternal. Like it, it's going to be a thing. As long as people are out on the water, you run the risk of, of these kind of things happening. Mm-hmm. I did want to read just a little bit from a, uh, it was an article that I um, I found by Frederick L. Johnson, who's one of the big sources on this because he's a local uh-huh. historian and writer. So a, a lot of the, if you Google the Sea Wing disaster, a lot of the articles you'll find are written by Frederick L. Johnson. Uh, this is one that I found from, uh, I forget what journal it appeared in. Uh, this appeared in Minnesota History in 1990. And, you know, we talked a lot about kind of the hazy facts of this. You know, at the time, there's different reports coming out, and then some of those things get repeated over and over again until those become the facts. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to read a, a short quote from the end of his article here. He says, The difficulty of rediscovering and then researching a hundred-year-old story only roughly chronicled in its day compels the historian to recall Emerson's words, Time dissipates to shining ether the solid angularity of facts. Despite limitations inherent in this kind of research, such attempts need to be made. The families involved in such tragedies keep their own records in their letters, their photographs, and their hearts. So I think he he makes a good point there. And it's the same point that you made earlier of it is difficult to research these stories from a factual perspective, but the effort still needs to be put in because mm-hmm. there were people involved in this. And this is this is a story that shouldn't be forgotten about. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it, it may be preserved in, in the, on a local level. Uh, but yeah, this, these, a lot of the stories that we tell here are, are ones that strike us and we, we feel that just more people need to know about them. And I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, for sure. It definitely is. That's, that's always the goal for something like this. Yeah, that's really all I have for this one. Unless you've got anything else you'd like to add, I think we can uh, put a bow on it. 
I don't think so. Um, I think that wraps up this one. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, I did just want to, I guess, while we're at the end here, I, I do just want to mention our upcoming Patreon episode. We will be continuing our conversation about prison ships. Yes, we will. Last month on Patreon, we talked mainly about prison ships in the during the American Revolution. Uh, we're going to be shifting our focus to those used in Britain itself and also in Australia. So look for that. We'll be recording that probably next weekend. And we'll be getting that out to you for our Patreon subscribers. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, we highly recommend it, obviously. But uh, but there's some good stuff on there. Some material that's a little bit more tangential, you know, ship related, maritime related, but not always necessarily about a shipwreck or a disaster or something like that. So it just gives us a chance to sort of spread our wings a little bit and play around with some some different topics. So yeah, yeah. check that out. For sure. Yeah. Hope you guys have a great uh, week. And enjoy this episode, and we will be back next week with another one. Thanks for listening, everybody.